Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit You know the theory of the butterfly effect? You've at least heard it explained in the first Jurassic Park movie, before the self-guided Jeeps and the franchise itself went off the rails, a young, super condescending, but still somehow really hot Jeff Goldblum leans over to a young, super well-educated, but somehow totally naive Laura Dern and explains chaos theory. How one event somewhere can catalyze into changed fates everywhere. Or, as he puts it, The shorthand is the, the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking, and in Central Park you get rain instead of sunshine. What if the butterfly flapping its wings is a little boy getting kidnapped, and the rain in Central Park is the tragic murders of four innocent people decades later? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who knows they've done a lot of episodes recently about little white boys who went missing, but promises that this one is different. This week, part one of a two-part saga that is the Stainer Brothers tragedy. Sometimes I think about how complex and random life is. Everything in your life had to go exactly the way it did in order for you to be right here, right now. The good and the bad. Regretful decisions and smart ones. And the millions of factors out of your control. Where you were born. What your parents were like. Who you ran into on the street on the way home from school. A butterfly flaps its wings. On December 4th, 1972, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was walking home from school in Merced, California, a town about two and a half miles southeast of San Francisco, near Yosemite National Park. The weather was nasty, cold, and sleety. When he was about three blocks from home, Stephen was approached by a man who handed him a religious pamphlet purporting to be raising money for a local church. Stephen thought his mother, who had raised the family Mormon, would likely be willing to donate. As he stood there chatting with the stranger, a car pulled up, and the man behind the wheel asked if he wanted a ride home. The man who'd given Stephen the pamphlet called the driver Minister and got into the passenger seat. And so, little Stephen climbed into the back seat of the stranger's car to get out of the sleet. But the minister didn't stop at Stephen's house. Instead, he kept going toward Highway 140, telling Stephen not to worry, that they would call his mother when they got back to his place to ask if he could stay over. By all accounts, it seems little Stephen didn't cry or scream or put up too much of a fuss. This was before the era of stranger danger. My guess is Stephen's parents taught him to be polite to strangers, which is apparently a thing human beings used to be. But still, it's hard to imagine a kid just sort of willingly riding off with two strangers, even if one of them was a minister. 
Of course, you and I both know the man driving the car was not a minister. The man driving the car was 41-year-old Kenneth Parnell, a man deemed a, quote, sexual psychopath by a court-appointed psychiatrist when he was only 19. Sexual psychopath is no longer an official diagnosis, but I think we get a pretty clear idea of this guy's issues from that outdated term. The first time he'd been arrested as an adult was in 1951 when he was about 20 years old for molesting a prepubescent boy. But by then, he'd already been in and out of juvie for theft, arson, and having sex with boys in public. In his adulthood, he somehow managed to convince not one or two, but three different women to marry him. Not at the same time, of course. That would be illegal. Between 1951 and 1972, Parnell had spent lots of time in prison and in psychiatric hospitals and had escaped from said hospitals twice. So, not only was he not a minister, he was a serious piece of shit. Parnell's sidekick was a man named Irvin Murphy, whom he'd met working at an inn on the edge of Yosemite National Park. An article about this case in Esquire from 2007 calls Murphy, quote, slow-witted, but I don't know if that was some kind of official finding or what. I mean, clearly anyone who knowingly helps someone abduct a child for any reason isn't the brightest bulb in the cookie tin. Parnell apparently told Murphy he wanted to save a battered child and adopt him as his own. And Murphy was like, okay, I guess. Who the fuck knows how these men's brains functioned? Parnell and Murphy took Stephen about a half an hour northeast to Kathy's Valley, California, where Parnell rented a one-room cabin with no heat. Stephen started asking to go home pretty much as soon as they got there. Something terrifying about the way Parnell managed to pull this whole thing off was that he supposedly said something like, "'Your parents are angry at you, Stephen.' Can you think of why they might be angry at you? And of course, because Stephen was seven, he figured Parnell, a grown-up and a minister, no less, must know what he was talking about. And indeed, Stephen had gotten in trouble that week for taking too long to get home and for writing his name on the garage door. There's a pretty good for a TV movie TV movie about this from the late 80s that I found on someone's Facebook page called I Know My First Name Is Steven, which was actually nominated for four Emmys. In the movie, Steven's mother had been encouraging his father to, quote, put the belt to him and, quote, give him a whipping because it was the only way Steven would learn. Supposedly, Steven's dad was super reluctant to whip his child, probably because that's a truly atrocious thing to do to any human being, let alone a child who is your child. And instead, just warned Stephen that if he messed up again, he would get the belt. If there's anything we know about corporal punishment, it's that it totally prevents people from breaking the rules. Oh, wait. No, it literally doesn't. Anyway... Parnell assumed that a seven-year-old boy would surely have done something in the recent past to make his parents upset, so all he had to do was ask Stephen what that might have been. And when Stephen told him about coming home late from school, Parnell was like, right, that's exactly what it was. He told Stephen that his parents needed some time to cool off, so Stephen would spend the night with him. 
He told Stephen to take a shower and then took him to bed and raped him. Murphy, Parnell's sidekick, according to the TV movie, wasn't tremendously keen on what Parnell was doing, but for whatever reason, didn't do anything to stop it. I suppose it got to the point where he figured he was just as complicit as Parnell, at least for kidnapping, that he would be arrested too if he tried to turn Parnell in. And if it's true that he had a very low IQ, it's doubtful he was able to think through how any of that would go anyway. Apparently, Murphy was one of 10 children whose abusive mother abandoned the family when he was about three and whose older brother had served time for attempted sexual assault of an eight-year-old girl. But it also seems like he was a sweet and gentle man who would give you the shirt off your back if you needed it. And as far as I can tell, Parnell was one of, if not Murphy's only friend. It's likely he somehow bought Parnell's story that he was saving this poor kid who had no one. About the sexual abuse that Murphy must have been witness to, I don't know how he justified that. A week or so later, Parnell brought Stephen a puppy, to which Stephen was like, okay, but also I want to go home. And Parnell told him his parents didn't want him anymore, and he was adopting him. His parents, Parnell explained, couldn't afford to keep him. And it just so happened that money was tight in the Stainer home. Stephen had an older brother and three sisters, and if the TV movie was accurate, they were struggling financially, and they lived in a pretty tiny three-bedroom house. I can't begin to imagine the hole that opened up inside Stephen's heart when he heard all this. Parnell then told Stephen he'd been to court that day and legally adopted him. He told Stephen his name was now Dennis, and he was to call Parnell Dad. So Stephen had no choice but to trust Parnell, believing that his parents literally handed him off to a stranger with no warning. The truth, of course, was that back in Merced, less than a half hour's drive away, the desperate search for Stephen had begun the night he went missing. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Back at the Stainer home in Merced, on the day Stephen went missing, his parents, Kay and Delbert, first thought he was just dawdling home from school again. Delbert worked as a mechanic at a local peach cannery. And while Delbert was afforded this very perfunctory bio, Stephen's mother, Kay, was not. So we're left to assume she was a housewife, which I guess is not even worth mentioning. Who cares? She only runs and manages a house of seven people. Interestingly, though, most accounts of this story find it important to point out that Kay was emotionally distant and cold. According to his book on this case, I Know My First Name is Stephen, author Mike Eccles writes that Kay was raised in the Roman Catholic Church and sent to a Catholic boarding school when she was in first grade. 
In her interviews for the book, she talked about the abuse she suffered while at school. And as a result, quote, she said she just couldn't get into the hugging and kissing. Kay, in a perfunctory sense, was very concerned about their being fed and clothed, but she was not touchy-feely. She was not physically affectionate. End quote. And, like, fine, Kay was emotionally distant, but all we get about the dad was that he worked in a peach canning place, and then we hear all about how Kay never hugged her kids, and according to the movie, was constantly encouraging her husband to give the kids a whipping? Mmm, smells like misogyny! Anyway. As soon as they realized Stephen wasn't just dawdling on his way home from school, but was in fact not coming home, Kay and Delbert called the police. A search went underway immediately and flyers went up around town. In the TV movie, Kay's father, Stephen's grandfather, is a crotchety old bastard who chastises his daughter and brother-in-law all the time for having too many children. He makes a lovely comment about how animals usually let the runt of the litter die, I guess referring to Stephen. It just so happens, again in the movie, that old Grandpa Infanticide lives mere yards away from the cabin Parnell was holding Stephen in Kathy's Valley. The night Stephen goes missing, Delbert rushes up to his father-in-law's home to look for him. It stands to reason that the person who's constantly making comments about getting rid of your kids might be a good suspect in your kid's disappearance. Of course, Stephen isn't at Grandpa Human Shitbird's creepy shack. No, he's next door in the other garbage human's creepy shack. At least according to the TV movie. Then again, Kay also hugs and kisses her children in the movie, so it's unclear how accurate it is. Despite the search efforts, of course, there was no sign of Stephen or even a clue as to what might have happened. He was last seen walking home from school, and then, as far as anyone in Merced knew, he vanished into thin air. That didn't stop Stephen's father from searching, though. Though his efforts read as a bit passive. He said that he would search faces in crowds on TV or in newspapers and magazines, hoping to spot Stephen. Then again, what can you really do? California is a big-ass state. It's not like he could have realistically driven the entire state and knocked on every door. Then again, there was that dude in China who rode around the whole country on a scooter with a picture of his missing son on it for 23 years until he actually found him. And, as we've learned in our recent episode about the disappearance of Aton Pates, there was no national registry of missing children in 1972. Today, an alert might pop up when a child enters a new school with no school records or, like, proof of his existence, but... Back in 1972, apparently everyone was too busy listening to Bye Bye Miss America Pie and following Nixon's spectacular downfall to think about how to prevent people from snatching random children off the street, or at least how to find them when they did. Delbert Stainer apparently retreated into his grief and walked around a shell of the former peach cannery mechanic he had once been while Kay still performed her motherly duties, quote, by rote, 
as they said in an Esquire piece. I guess being emotionally distant was perfect preparation for losing her child. In his grief, Delbert was known to hold Stephen's clothes to his face and weep. And since Stephen and his older brother Carrie shared a room, it seems Delbert was doing this in front of Carrie, which in and of itself isn't a problem, but it was when he would blame Carrie for Stephen's disappearance or refer to Stephen as his real son that it may have rubbed Carrie the wrong way. And while Delbert's despair was on display for the whole family, Carrie was careful not to mention Stephen in the house, or anywhere, really, for fear that it would send his father into another bout of sobbing and blaming. At school, Carrie felt like the guy whose brother was kidnapped. Because he was. Meanwhile, 3,000 miles south, Parnell, known to Stephen as Dad, and Stephen, known now as Dennis, had finally settled down in a dingy trailer up a dirt road somewhere in Mendocino County. At some point, Parnell had cooked up a story that Stephen's real father had died of a heart attack and that his mother moved away. He said no one knew where Stephen's brother and sisters were, so even if he could break out of Parnell's spell, Stephen would have nowhere to go. The awful truth about this kind of kidnapping is that eventually the captor becomes the captive's only source of food and shelter. The captive is completely reliant on their abuser, and to run away is to risk having no one and nothing. And the terrible irony is that the captor makes it seem like it's the captive's choice to stay. After all, the door is open. Ugh. Up until that point, they'd been shuffling around Northern California, enrolling Stephen in the local school wherever they would settle for any length of time. I don't know what year they moved into the trailer, but he was there during high school. To the outside world, Stephen slash Dennis seemed like a normal kid. His high school girlfriend, Lori Duke, said that he had a great personality and was spunky and friendly, if a little shy. But the truth was that Parnell was subjecting Stephen to horrific physical, emotional, and mental abuse. By Parnell's own estimation, he had raped Stephen more than 3,000 times. 3,000 times? That would have been at least once a day, and sometimes multiple times a day. Anyway... Parnell had become aware by this point that Stephen was getting too old and too big to be controlled for much longer, so he made a decision that would lead to his undoing. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. In February of 1980, Parnell asked Stephen to help him lure another small child into his car so he could kidnap him, and Stephen was like, fuck no, Bob. 
So Parnell paid some random teenager to do it instead. And on February 14th, he brought home four-year-old Timmy White, who was apparently walking to his babysitter's house after school at four years old. Man, the 70s and 80s, am I right? Timmy, it seems, was less manipulatable than Stephen had been when Parnell took him. Where Stephen seemed resigned to his new fate pretty quickly, Timothy apparently spent two weeks pretty much crying relentlessly and saying that he wanted to go home. Whether or not Parnell told Timmy the same things he told Stephen back when he first kidnapped him, that his parents didn't want him anymore, and asked Parnell to take him off their hands, I don't know. But whatever it was, something snapped in Stephen after a couple weeks of watching Timmy beg and cry, and he realized he had to do something. He didn't want Timmy going through the same hell he'd been put through. And so, on March 1st, 1980, eight years after Parnell snatched him off the street in Merced, Stephen Stainer took Timmy White's hand after Parnell left for work and hitchhiked to the nearest police station in Ukiah, California. He hadn't planned to identify himself to the police, but obviously when someone shows up with a missing child, the police aren't like, oh, gee, thanks, mister. Bye. They brought Stephen in for questioning, and it sort of became impossible for him to explain how he knew that Parnell kidnapped Timmy without revealing that he, too, had been kidnapped by Parnell. And that's when he uttered the line, I know my first name is Stephen. Ukiah police put two and two together and called the Merced police and were like, uh, are you sitting down? Stephen was finally reunited with his family, with about 350 friends, family, and neighbors and media outlets gathered outside the house. He received a hero's welcome and was a media sensation for a while, appearing on Good Morning America just three days after coming home. From the outside, it looked like everything would be fine. The family presented a united front of general okayness, but once again, Stephen's home life was a lot worse than what it looked like. For starters, Stephen wasn't given any counseling after a few sessions provided by the state. His parents didn't want him to go to counseling. His dad, apparently, was one of those people who thinks therapy is for the weak-willed. You know, the kind of person who suggests you go get some exercise when you tell them you're suicidally depressed. Turns out Delbert might have had an ulterior motive for not allowing Stephen to go to therapy, but I'll get to that. Something interesting about the story of Stephen Stainer is that he was found in time to return back to his old life as a completely new person. And it made for a kind of trippy dynamic. The only way I know how to describe it is this. So you know how when you run into someone you knew when you were a kid and it's weird that they're an adult now? Or like someone from high school and you're like, oh yeah, you're a huge Sum 41 fan. And they're like, uh, yeah, 20 years ago. When Steven came home, his family remembered him as a seven-year-old, but he was 15 and not like, an Eagle Scout, you know what I mean? He'd spent the last eight years with a monster. And aside from the abuse, he was used to drinking and smoking at home. 
Now, here he was back in his childhood home with his Mormon family, sharing a bedroom with his 17-year-old brother Carrie, who, not for nothing, was nursing some pretty serious resentment towards Stephen that had only amplified since Stephen had come home and was now a minor celebrity. And everyone expected Stephen to just be normal. He started going to the local high school pretty much right away. And again, he wasn't getting any therapy. Everyone was doing their best to ignore the massive elephant in the room, trauma. How do you go from living in an actual nightmare to a fucking Norman Rockwell painting? Even with therapy, imagine the PTSD, Jesus. At this point, no one knew about the sexual abuse. When police asked, Stephen denied that Parnell had ever touched him inappropriately. But then, while police searched Parnell's place, they found photos of Stephen in undeniably compromising situations. In the movie version, the police officer confronts Stephen about the photos in front of his dad, and like normally, sure, a minor should always have a parent or lawyer present when the cops are poking around, but... When you're about to show someone a naked picture of themselves from when they were eight or nine years old, maybe be a little sensitive. In the movie, the father is horrified at this revelation. Again, who knows if it really went down exactly this way, but we do know this. Even after finding these photos, they still didn't put Stephen in therapy. Not only that, but the family seemed to not even discuss this all with him. In the movie, Delbert wouldn't even look Stephen in the eye once he found out about the rape. He even says to Stephen, Why didn't you stop him? Um, dude, he was seven when it started. Like, what was he supposed to do? Also, this offender was the person literally keeping him alive, so it's kinda complicated. According to author Mike Eccles, that was pretty much the way it actually happened. The non-sexual abuse elicited sympathy, but the sexual abuse was something to be ashamed of. Gee, I, I wonder why. Oh, right, homophobia. Later, one of Carrie's friends said, it was like it never happened, like he was never kidnapped or anything. There's just something, you know, off with that whole family. Once the news got out that Stephen had endured years of sexual abuse at the hands of Parnell, kids at school started bullying him, calling him all kinds of gay slurs. Because of course they did. Kids are the worst. Not your kid, of course. Your kid is great. I'm sure. To make matters worse, Stephen had to go even more public with this information when he was asked to testify at Parnell's trial. Mendocino District Attorney Joseph Allen said that Parnell was not tried for the sexual abuse and rape because of the emotional stress it would have put Stephen through. He was, apparently, the only one in this whole mess who seemed concerned with Stephen's mental health. But Allen said that given the laws at the time, even if they had tried him for sexual abuse, it wouldn't have added much time to his sentence. Parnell received seven years for the abduction of Timmy White. And brace yourselves for this, folks. 20 months for Stainer's abduction. I know. I know. Ultimately, he only served five years due to time off for, quote, good behavior. 
And sure, when a pedophile is in prison with other adults, it's not likely he'll behave too badly, considering the median age of his fellow inmates. Ugh. So, Parnell spent less time in prison than Stephen spent imprisoned with Parnell. The good news is that the law changed after this to make the sentencing for these kinds of crimes heavier. And yet, there would still be no therapy for Stephen. So it's sort of no wonder that when he was told he would have to repeat his senior year because of how many school days he'd missed for, you know, having been kidnapped and tortured for eight years and then literally saving himself and another child, Stephen opted instead to drop out. At this point, he'd received around $40,000 for consulting on the TV movie and as a reward for saving Timmy White. But the thing about not going to therapy after serious, prolonged trauma and then having your family be ashamed of you because of what happened to you and then having your peers bully you also for what happened to you is that you end up pretty maladjusted. Stephen spent the money on drugs and cars, and to be fair, on top of all the other shit, he was still basically a child. So it's hard not to forgive him. Despite all of that, which is a lot, Stephen's girlfriend found out she was pregnant, and Stephen sort of straightened up. Probably not all the way, considering everything, but he moved out of his parents' house into a trailer with his girlfriend. He got a degree equivalent to a high school diploma after taking a course in welding. By 1989, at about 25 years old, he had a job at Pizza Hut, had married his high school girlfriend, and they had two children together. And they all lived happily ever after. Just kidding. In 1989, nine years after coming home from hell, Stephen Stainer died in a motorcycle accident, leaving behind his wife and two children. Stephen Stainer could literally not get a break. But still, it seems, he was making a life for himself. The same, unfortunately, could not be said for his older brother, Carrie. A little more than a year after Stephen died, Carrie's uncle Jerry, with whom Carrie was living, was murdered in their home with his own shotgun. Carrie apparently loved Jerry like a father, His uncle's death sent Carrie drifting from job to job in the Yosemite area. And it was there, at Yosemite National Park, that Carrie's life would take an extremely dark turn. You'll have to wait till the next episode to hear about that. I'll close with this. Carrie, it seems, could probably also have benefited from therapy. He'd had emotional problems since he was at least three years old. And he was walking around with some truly awful thoughts rolling around in his head. But of course, like Stephen, he would never have been allowed to see a therapist until it would have been too late. Remember when I said the reason I thought the Stainers wouldn't let Stephen go to therapy was because therapy is for weaklings? Turns out, I was only partly right. The whole truth was that there were allegedly some seriously terrible skeletons in the Stainers' closet. Skeletons that, if they came out, would ruin everyone. The terrible irony, of course, is that in this tale, pretty much everyone ended up ruined anyway.
Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, part two of the Stainer Brothers saga, in which Carrie Stainer goes from passive observer to active participant, and four innocent women die as a result. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me and edited by Eve Kerrigan and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>